You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's going to be a uh, slightly different run of play this week on the proper, what will almost certainly be the last proper of the year. Uh, I think we're planning to take next week off, given that it's the week between Christmas and New Year's. And so uh, we will talk to all of the people today, and then again, I would assume, picking up that first week of January. But uh, we're going to do something slightly different this week. We will spend some time at the beginning of the show talking about the last UFC event of the year where Sean Strickland and Jared Cannonier fought in a middleweight main event. And uh, we'll take some listener mail. And then we're going to spend the second half of the show kind of talking about the year in the UFC and specifically that it was kind of a weird year in the octagon or out of the octagon, as the case may be, I guess, for the UFC's stars. And so we'll focus on that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about what we think might happen next for some of those people. And uh, then we'll put a bow on it for 2022. How are you doing this week? You know I'm ready to put a bow on some shit. No, I know you love it. If there's one thing the, the I know. holiday season and whatnot. If there's one thing I know you love, it's putting a bow on it. So that's what we are going to do this week. Let's talk first, I guess, about... Jared Cannonier and Sean Strickland from Saturday night's uh, UFC event, the final UFC event of the year. In a way, I guess it felt a little bit fitting to me that Strickland and Cannonier was the last main event of 2022 because it seemed very much in keeping uh, with some of the other themes that we've been talking about recently, but also throughout the entire year in that... Uh, You know, you had a a disputable judge's decision here. You had one that probably could have gone either way. As it turns out, Jared Cannonier takes the split decision from Sean Strickland. It's 49-46s across the board. Just so happens two of them came up for Cannonier. One of them came up for Sean Strickland. If you start looking at how the judges actually scored each round, you get yourself into a fucking mind bender because there was not (laughs) a lot of agreement between the judges about who won which round. But not only did we have a questionable or arguable judge's decision here, Ben, but you also had, I don't know, sort of like a lower profile fight night main event between a couple of 185 pound fighters whose names we know and whose stories we're somewhat familiar with. But at the same time, it wasn't really clear what the stakes were here in this fight. And so I think that makes this, you know, a a very applicable fight to the whole scene of what's going on with the UFC right now and how how each and every week these fight nights kind of feel like this and so I guess I will turn it over to you to start out uh what was your takeaway if if there was one from all that we saw from Jared Cannonier and Sean Strickland didn't you get the feeling especially in the corner I think before the fifth and final round that this was exactly the kind of scenario that Extreme Couture coach Eric Nixick, an all-around good dude, Eric Nixick, sort of saw coming. Yeah. That he says something, and I believe it's in the the break between the fourth and fifth round, where he is imploring Sean Strickland basically to do more, to have to get busier, more offensive output. And he says at one point, I don't fucking know how this thing is going to be scored. Something to that effect. Like, this is exactly the kind of fight where if you were familiar with MMA and an MMA judging you look at it and you go, you, you you don't want to leave this one to chance because who knows what the hell they're going to say. Yeah. And here you are. They're saying a bunch of different things. And I think what this fight showed and a, a problem that Sean Strickland might have is when it's relatively equal, when there's no clear one guy taking over the fight situation, it's hard to win these close decisions going backwards. If Even if the other guy is not necessarily throwing more or landing more, if he looks like he is coming forward and is trying to press the fight and is trying to really do some damage, when it's close, the judges, 
either consciously or otherwise, will tend to side with that guy. Yeah. Slightly more often. I think that's what you saw here. Yeah. Well, and we also have a criteria that prioritizes damage over volume. So I think you always have a predisposition to side with the guy who seems like he's throwing harder punches, which again is a situation where you just get into subjectivity here yeah. with the uh, with the judging criteria and how we're going to score these things. It also kind of seemed like maybe Sean Strickland knew that this was what could occur with a, in a fight with Jared Cannonier because when we get around to reading the official verdict here after the fight is over, he tries to walk away from, I believe it was referee Herb Dean, after the first 49-46 is read, without even hearing who the scorecard is for. He hears that it's 49-46, and he is basically like, ah, fuck, and turns and like tries to walk away. And it's like, Sean, maybe they have you winning, bud. Come back. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know yet. But he just seemed like he had already jumped to the conclusion that this this was how it was going to go down for him in this fight. Well, it's it's a tough way to fight in some of these close ones because at no point does it look like he's really going after Jared Cannonier and going to put him away. Like there's a couple moments where he sticks him with something, maybe sticks him with a jab, lands a good right cross at a couple points, and you could see Cannonier's legs wobble a little bit. But you never really get the sense that Sean Strickland is going after him, trying to get him out of there. Yeah. Whereas Jared Cannonier at a couple points does seem to be doing that. And you're right that trying to score damage is so subjective because what do you do? Do you say like, okay, he clearly cracked him on one of these punches. I heard it. I know the other guy felt it, but this one where the guy just lands a jab and we see a little wobble in the dude's legs that is worth more. I don't know, man. That's really tough to, to base the whole fight outcome on. And it just seems like hearing Sean Strickland's corner be like, you don't want to let this one be too close because you don't know what the score is going to be like from here. Kind of suggests to me like that maybe one of the downsides of, as they talked often in the commentary of this, being a guy who spars so much that he's really good at managing the distance, staying just out of range, staying really calm, even when somebody's trying to get after him, is that it kind of translates, it seems, to a lack of urgency at times, where he doesn't ever seem like he's really pouring, like empty in the gas tank going out there. And I think that that's fine if you are absolutely controlling every single round and it's not even debatable that you are the one landing and doing the more damage. But when it's close, I don't know if that goes in your favor very often. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, you had Jared Cannonier over on the other side. And one of the, one of the ways that you know that this was a not a particularly scintillating or exciting fight is when they ask him afterwards. I think Paul Felder asked him a question like, how are you feeling or something when they read the scorecards? And he goes on a bit of a digression as Jared Cannonier is prone to do. Uh, but then he finally says, I felt I had done enough, you know? And that's when, you know, kind of like, okay, if this wasn't a great fight at the end, if someone is like, I felt like I did enough. Usually it means like we didn't have a definitive outcome. Also, yeah. maybe it means you didn't totally feel like you felt like you did enough because that's one of those things where you start saying it out loud and I start wondering, hmm, doth thou protest too much here, winner of this contested uh, split decision fight. In any case, you got 38-year-old Jared Cannon near now, 6-2 and two since he moved to the middleweight division back in 2018. Of course, the losses are unanimous decisions to Robert Whitaker and most recently to the former champion, Israel Adesanya. Uh, Paul Felder asked Jared Cannonier if he wanted a title fight, essentially, against new champion Alex Pereira. And at that point, Jared Cannonier went on a, a breakdown of the middleweight division that I thought was kind of impressive in its like self-awareness and his ability to talk things over about what was likely to happen next. Because, you know, he he didn't go so far as to call for a title shot. He was basically like, well, we're probably going to do Pereira and Adesanya again. They haven't scheduled that. So I guess I would like someone in the top three and or a title fight would be fine. Yeah, it, that did seem like a guy who is got uh, got his finger on the pulse of what's happening. Seems like a guy who's maybe on MMA Twitter. Guy might be reading some message boards, things, things of that nature. Yeah. Because that was exactly what you would expect asking somebody like one of us what's going on in the middleweight division. And he offers you this breakdown. However... That breakdown 
between the time he said it and now is already appears to be inaccurate. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true because uh, we have called off Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa. And this was, this seemed like one of those things, Ben, where like, I will admit it took me a while to figure out why this fight had had been called off. I saw it on my timeline first, Brett Okamoto over at ESPN tweeting that they called the thing off. It wasn't until I saw Bobby Knuckles' video that, that I realized, oh, we had this thing penciled on the whiteboard. And by whiteboard, I mean like the, the MMA bubble public whiteboard where we're like, this is a fight that's coming up. And Paulo Costa had never agreed to it. So that's that's where we're at, as as ever, I guess, in this sport where it seems like we are announcing fights, publicizing fights. Go ahead and slot the fight into the upcoming pay-per-view when one guy still hasn't agreed to it, which to me is how we seemingly always put the cart before the horse up in here. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like even saying it, the fight was called off, Paulo will tell you it was never on. And in fairness... He been saying this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and blame some of it on Paulo Costa's own penchant for doing a little bit of trolling now and then. Just being, you want to talk about somebody who has some silly little guy energy. For a jacked ass dude, Paulo Costa can really be a silly little guy on the internet at times. But he's been telling us from the get go. I've never agreed to this. I'm not going to do it unless the money gets right. All this stuff. Meanwhile, the UFC putting out these streets saying, like, oh, it's officially agreed to. It's on this fight. We're selling tickets. People are making their travel arrangements. People are really excited to go to Perth, watch this one. And then you act like Paulo pulled out of the fight when really Paulo was like, I never agreed to the fight. I was never in. So that's not on me if you want to say I'm out now. I never agreed to it. And it is a real, it's not a new practice at all by the UFC. They've done this before. Sometimes they do it to force somebody's hand or sometimes they do it because they think, well, we're, it's only a matter of time before we get the signed bout agreements, but we got to start selling the tickets now. We can't wait uh, too late. We have to have something to promote. I remember talking to uh, Frank Mir's manager at the time when the UFC announced the rematch between him and Brock Lesnar for the heavyweight title. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, news is Frank Mir has got to have surgery. He's out. And his manager was like, he's never in. We told the UFC when they wanted to put this fight together, he's probably going to have to have surgery. And the answer from the UFC was, we can't promote a pay-per-view without a main event. Right. So they announced it knowing that they weren't going to do it. They, they've done that before. But then when you hear your man Bobby Knuckles sitting there being like, well, it really sucks because I put time and money into this training camp. I was counting on this to have a good Christmas for the kids. All that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, you... You messing with people's money at that point, telling them that there's going to be a fight when you never had it on paper that there was going to be one. Yeah. At that point, uh, it might be a good idea for these fighters to talk to each other. You know, yeah. it might be a good idea for uh, Bobby Knuckles to have Paulo Costa's number in his phone, call him up and be like, PC, are we doing this? Is yeah. this happening? Should Send I? your man a DM on Twitter and just be like, okay, are you being a silly little guy yeah. or are you being straight up? Should I buy my son the Indominus Rex? Uh, Jurassic Park action figure, which costs like 60 bucks, or should I just get him the uh, the $45 T-Rex? You know, do you tell me, am I going to get a paycheck between now and then? It's also it sounded like uh, Robert Whitaker's a little bit ready to blame Paulo Costa. like, from what I understand, the UFC offered him this contract that he wanted, and he still wouldn't take the fight. And it's like, yeah, well, I mean, that that is what they're going to say to you. Like, that is, we. how many times have we heard some version of that? Right. Where some fighters being like, oh, you know, this guy wouldn't take the fight. No, everybody's scared of me. Nobody. Everybody's turning me down. And then people are being like, bro, they said that to all of us to keep us happy or to or to at least make it so that when we're unhappy, it is not the UFC that we blame. We yeah. blame each other. Yeah. Remember, you're listening to the co-made event podcast proper. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries. Uh, if you think we're having fun right now, you should check us out over on Patreon. Ben folks and I are typically over there all week churning out that additional MMA content. We've got the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursdays doing the damn thing podcast. And of course, Friday's power hour, which is a full extra hour of curated MMA talk 
uh, from the two hosts you love to love equally. Get down with us. We got a patronage tier for every budget. Head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. Great time to get in at the start of the year, I'd say. Start of 2023. Ben, you can just ride that that Patreon content all year if that's what you want to do. And it's a hell of a ride, you know? I'm going to go ahead. Unforgettable ride. I, you know, I didn't know this is a, I'm making a, a an audible here. I'm going to drop some music into the middle of this podcast and uh, it's going to be from our guys foreign cash, the LA based production duo that we feature on the show frequently. Remember it's C A C H E in the word cash. And if you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreign cash again, C A C H E in the word cash. All right. No rounds this week. Uh, but like we always do about this time, let's get in to a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again, brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN is one of our favorite online products right now. I use it on all my devices. I know Ben does too. It's super fast. It's easy to use. And it gives you the peace of mind of knowing that all your personal information is safe online whether you're using the internet at home, traveling, or just running around town and your phone is bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Ben, what is your favorite part of NordVPN? Well, Chad, you know that I love how it switches right on to protect me when I am on various public Wi-Fis, as I am known to do. You know, I'm a man about town, Chad. So yeah. whether I am down at the bar casino where they have the Montana sports bet machine putting my bets in, whether I'm across town at the pawn shop, whether I'm back at the sports bar and casino putting my bets in, NordVPN has me covered. That is true. We've been telling you guys about the Nord security bundle for a little while now. NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go for the big dog, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker. Generate and store strong passwords. Protect files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to NordVPN slash Comain or use the code Comain to get one free bonus month as well as their exclusive 30-day money-back guarantee. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Leonard, Sh- uh, Leonard Shelby, who writes... Gents, how did it happen that Kung Fu meme fighter Alex Caceres has somehow amassed a 7-1 and run without us noticing? Is he somehow good now? Uh, it would appear to me that uh, Leonard Shelby is the, the, film the villain from Memento, according to the internet. So thanks to him for for writing in. Uh, I guess is he, it, the, is he the, the villain? So it says, uh, hey, man, I'm just reading it off Google. The have villainous... you seen Memento? Are you going to sit here and say you haven't seen Memento? I've, yeah, I saw it when it came out in 2000. Yeah. 20, I know. Almost 23 years ago. Rocked everybody's fucking world when it came out. You remember that? Leonard People Shelby. had their minds blown like they hadn't had them blown since uh, finding out that Bruce Willis was dead all along. <laughs> wow. Okay. Spoiler alert. Leonard Shelby is the villainous main protagonist. Well, that's... Whew, that's the, wrap your head around that one. Talking about having your mind blown. Yeah. He's the villainous main protagonist of the 2000 film Memento, according to Villains Wiki at villains.fandom.com. Man, all this time I could have been wasting time over there on Villains Wiki and I didn't even know it. Here's another thing that's going to bend your mind, Ben Folks. Alex Caceres is only 34 years old. Feels like he's been fighting in the UFC since we all were kids. And uh, Leonard Shelby is right. Seven and one in his last eight, a unanimous decision loss to Sadiq Youssef earlier this year is the only recent blemish on the record of, of uh, Bruce Leroy. The previous to that is only his most recent loss was Cron Gracie submission. That's how you're going to lose uh, back in 2019. So yeah, he's been on a real run here and I'd venture a guess if we're going to remember any one thing from Saturday's UFC fight night, it's going to be the head kick knockout of Julian Arosa by the suddenly resurgent Alex Caceres. Well, 
I guess it doesn't surprise me that much to learn that A, a fellow could quietly amass a pretty good record in one of these lighter weight classes without us knowing or without us noticing, rather. Um, just because, as we've talked before, you have this kind of run at heavyweight. We're ready to put you up there with the goats. Yeah, he's got two championships under his belt if he's 7-1 and one at the UFC heavyweight division. Yeah, I mean... You do it at featherweight, and you're just another one of the guys who seems like he may be good. Yeah. There's a bunch of them around. The other thing is that Alex Caceres, I think, it's not that I think we ever looked at him and were like, this guy sucks, this guy can never be any good. He has the kind of fighting style where it seems like he could fuck around and lose almost any fight. But that also can make him kind of fun to watch. He had a lot of fights there where it's like he was not exactly fighting like a guy who was thinking about getting the win at all costs or uh, being conservative or, or thinking about how the judges might be seeing it. He was kind of going out there and letting it all hang out. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's going to work out for you. Other times it's not. Like, I, I guess if you tell me that the 34-year-old version of Alex Caceres is smarter and is learning to put it all together and is capable of some dope shit like this, and this was a dope-ass knockout to just be able to transition the way he did right from uh, throwing the punch to the then out of nowhere, leg comes up, smacks you upside the head. I'm like, okay, I that's the kind of guy I could believe. He's capable of pulling off some dope stuff. He also might go out there and fuck around and lose a decision in his next fight. That yeah. could happen too. Yeah. I mean, if Alex Caceres has learned that maybe going out there and trying to get the W is the way to go on this latest streak. He came by it honestly. Yeah. Because between 2014 and that loss to Crone Gracie in February of 2019, he went four and seven in the UFC. Uh, and that, that could be a stretch that, uh, that teaches you some things you could learn maybe from that. Hey, what I ought to do is, is close these holes in my game. And maybe go out there and try to win some of these things. Like maybe maybe make that my number one focus instead of going with the flow and just going along with this public perception that sometimes we get in MMA fighting that what you ought to do is try to entertain the fans. So Alex Caceres now, as I said, seven and one in his last eight, and also entertaining the fans with head kick knockouts. And you know what else really blow your mind? Alex Caceres came to our general awareness uh, on the Ultimate Fighter Team GSP versus Team Koscheck, Chad, which aired in the fall of 2010. Chad, he's closer. His his debut, sort of in our our consciousness as a UFC fighter, is closer to the release of Memento than it is now. How about that? That's uh. 2000. That's, that's really mind-blowing. Shelby. Yeah. That's really mind-blowing. Because see, what had happened was he had a memory thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this. I'll, I'll, don't worry. I'll go over the whole plot with you as soon as we're done here. Yeah, save it for afterward. Save it for He after had these hours. Polaroids. He would write down on the Polaroids to help him remember. That is Genius plot itself, device. Dated. Just, uh-huh. take, just keep on your phone at this point. Next question this week comes to us from Jed Buslinger. And if you can't tell just from the name, Jed Buslinger, that's an Australian rules football player. Okay. Jed with I mean, two Ds, by the way. If they didn't already have an Australian rules football player by the name of Jed Buslinger, they would have to invent one. You know? Jed Buslinger writes, another big knockout for the cartoon astronaut Drew Dober. He's long been a capital G guy for the purposes of this podcast, but he actually, but can he actually make some noise in the top 10 uh, frankly, I love the description of Drew Dober as a cartoon astronaut. Yeah. He went that out works. there, knocked out Bobby Green. I guess I should I should stand correct. I should correct myself on a fact. Because I said just a couple minutes ago that the one thing we might remember from this fight night card was Alex Caceres' high kick knockout of Julian Arosa. But we'll be watching the Drew Dober knockout of Bobby Green for a while too because uh, he stroked him. Hit him right in the jaw with one of them haymakers he likes to throw. And that was all she wrote. This was uh, three wins in a row now for Drew Dober. Three wins in a row all in 2022, including two performance-based bonuses for Drew Dober. So not only is he potentially knocking on the door of being something approaching a contender, but that's a pretty dang good year in the UFC. 
you know, I, I think also what we'll remember is not only Drew Dober, you know, eating some shots on his uh, cartoonishly handsome face and not seeming to mind it at all, then finding Bobby Green's chin and Bobby Green being the most good-natured knockout victim I think we've ever seen. Because he's laying there after the stoppage and he's just like kind of almost laughing to himself being like, oh, no way. He fucking got me. Oh, come on, man. And then is immediately just kind of like, well, hey, shit, that's how it goes sometimes, you know? And you're just like, wow, for a guy who just went from winning to losing and got completely laid out and blasted upside his head with a hard-ass punch, you seem like you're in a really good mood. <laughs> I got, I'm forced to respect it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things working against Drew Dober at this point in time might be the loss to current champion Islam Mahachev in March of last year. He got arm triangled in the third round. So once you have that loss to the current champion on your record, sometimes you have to do a little bit more to get back there. Uh, But at this point, Drew Dober, newly ranked in the UFC's lightweight top 15. He's at number 14. So, you know, got to admire the work he's been doing, if not the chiseled goddamn jawline of Drew Dober. And then you know he's going to post that picture on Instagram of him sitting there in his robe with his cup of cup of coffee in front of the gaming console, yeah. computer, whatever he was doing. Did give off a little bit of uh, "Hey, fellow teens" vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's <laughs> you just know a savvy move right there. Th- that is. That's how you run some social media. Not only be like, a good-looking dude, but also brand yourself as a nerd to try to curry mm-hmm. favor inside the. I level. too am a gamer, friends. Please, by all means, let us talk about gaming here together. Next question this week comes to us from Joe over on Patreon. He writes, the commentary Saturday night talked a lot about damage being a huge indicator of who is going to win for the judges. But then we watched uh, Garcia bleed all over the place and win 30-27 on two judges' cards. When considering damage, how much does blood matter? Is someone who bleeds easily like Darren Elkins or Nate Diaz back in the day at a huge disadvantage? I'm gonna give now, this I love how we managed to get the phrase blood matter yeah. into this thing. I'm going to give this a soft yes, because I think generally speaking, if one guy has blood all over his face, I period, you period, Sean Strickland in Saturday's main event, judges are more apt to think that that person is losing. But you just named a couple of people who bleed a lot and also win a lot in the UFC. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you. It's the end all beat all, and maybe it maybe it doesn't factor even factor in as much as we thought. Now I've seen before people say that it's at least according to the the guidelines given to judges or what they'll tell you in one of these like judging seminar kind of things, is that absent any other information, you are supposed to look at blood as if it is just red sweat. That it doesn't necessarily tell you that much. And and that's true, right? Like you could get a cut from an accidental clash of heads, a really small cut could produce a whole lot of blood. It doesn't necessarily tell you that a whole lot of damage has been done just because there's a cut and there's blood, right? Like it is, there's sort of a correlation where often if you are fighting and you find yourself gushing blood from one or more places in your head, things may not be going great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing. However, I've definitely heard fighters say, especially ones who feel like they are prone to cuts or they're, you know, for some reason they feel like they produce more blood in a fight even when they're winning, say that they they worry about that from judges because there's what judges are supposed to do and then there's what they might often do, especially yeah. if it's a close fight. Yeah, you're exactly right. And especially if the judges are sitting at, at ringside being like, wow, one of these guys is really, really sweaty and the other one's not quite as sweaty. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it kind of amazing that we still deny these judges like any kind of technology that they're sitting at right there at cage side. They got a good view. They're right up against the the fence, but at the same time, no monitors, no stats, none of that. So like, you know, if that's how you're going to do it, I don't even know if you can blame somebody for scoring a fight for the guy who's not quite as sweaty as the other guy. If the sweat is red and clotting up all over on the cage. Yeah, I mean, it is, at times, it is information that could be hard to ignore. All right, here is one from Gus Polinski. Probably going to want to Google that one. I'll get on that. 
Gentlemen, would you rather hear incorrect or baffling scorecards read out loud in the arena between the rounds of the fight or hear the correct or should I say more publicly agreed upon scorecards read out loud after the fight is over? Then it says pause to answer. Now, I don't totally understand the premise of the question so far, I have to say. I think I do. Okay. Um, and and it, by the way, it is good to hear from the polka king of the Midwest. Gus Polinski, clarinet player and lead musician of the Kenosha Kickers, Chad. You've oh, heard okay. Of the Kenosha yeah, Kickers. yes, yeah. Now we're doing a Home Alone thing here, right? Yep. Is that mm-hmm. okay? See, I didn't even look, and I, I placed the character. The I, I get really kind of what we're asking because, especially, and I have wondered this before too. Like in the a fight like the Patty Pimlet Jared Gordon one, and maybe this is a bad example because the crowd there seemed pretty pro Patty and did not seem like there was a ton of anger about the judge's decision just because so many assholes out there in their Patty Pimlet wigs, which again, why are you as a grown man wearing a Patty Pimlet wig? But I, you could imagine when the judges are in the process of fucking it up and after a round that everybody in the crowd thinks went one way, we hear it announced that the judges had it scored the other way. You can imagine there being an immediate reaction in the crowd. And it would be one that the judges themselves would then become aware of, whether they want to or not, basically, unless you're putting headphones on them or something. So you kind of create a feedback loop a little bit there. And I could see how at least theoretically, if even if you can't think of many instances where it actually happens in practice, you could ask yourself, is that what we want? Mm. That for the judges to be realizing people disagree with you, a lot of them, thousands of them, and they're here in the building right behind you, <laughs> and they know that you're fucking this up, and then now round two is about to start. Right. And what? how does that impact the judging? At the same time, like it also is going to impact the fighters. Cause if you went out there and you felt like, okay, I, I had to have won that round, right? Like these are close, but like, I got to win that one. And then you hear the judges being like 10, nine, the other guy. And you go, fuck. Well, I guess I better knock this son of a bitch out because I'm not winning a decision here. And that's going to change the way you fight. Yeah. Uh, now, when they do the open scoring in Kansas City, which they use for several Invicta events now, do they announce it to the crowd or do they just because they what they do is they have it on tablets and they yeah. hold it up in the corners in such a way so that the corner person who is inside the cage can see it, but the fighter cannot. And then it's sort of up to the to the person working the corner if they want to tell the fighter about it or not, which to me seems kind of like a shrewd way to do it because the scenario that you just described, I think you can imagine that like you can imagine how that would go in a way that's not great, especially like just to further your example, Patty Pimblett fighting in the UK, let's say, yeah. and you score a, a round for the other guy. Even if you got it right, you're going to get the shit booed out of you. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of things that could go wrong with open scoring. But it's also a thing where at times at this point, I, I think, you know, the way we got it going isn't great. Maybe yeah. we should try some other stuff, see if it helps. And if it doesn't, well, then we don't have to keep doing it. Well, and I've seen it done in boxing matches in Europe and stuff where they would announce it every few rounds. They'd be like, here's the score thus far. And then sometimes you can hear like the reaction on the crowd, whether they agree or not. Um so, yeah, there's definitely different ways to go about it. I mean, I think the point that Polka King of the Midwest, Gus Polinski, is making here, uh, and what he says here is like, my point is with all the talk of open scoring, does it really mean fuck all if guys like Doug Crosby are just doing their stuff no matter what the hell is happening inside the cage? Like, if you were the guy whose livelihood depends on that, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know why you still have a chance to do something about it? I mean, ideally, sure. Uh, guys like Doug Crosby would not be doing their shit. And we'd get those guys out of the sport and we'd just stop using them if they're such a problem. But if we're going to still be doing that, I would think you'd want to know. And the arguments against open scoring, I think, are just not good enough to, to at least not give it a try on a bigger level and see how it goes. Like all the things people tell us might happen as a result of open scoring. Let's see. Let's try it out and let's see. Because you're right. It doesn't seem like... 
we're super satisfied with the way things are now. And it is weird to be like, okay, this is a sport where like there is a scoring element. It might not always be used, but when it is used, it's secret. It's secret until nobody can do anything to impact the outcome. Then we tell you. Like, that's a weird way to score shit in sports. Yeah. And as I think we've said a couple times before when we talk about this, it doesn't seem like there's been a huge outcry from how it has gone in Invicta, right? It's not yeah. like you see people all the time being like, well, this ruined Invicta and we need to stop doing it. So right. I don't know. Maybe if a big company had some smaller events that didn't matter as much as the bigger ones, they could judiciously choose where and when to experiment, to dabble, so to speak, in open scoring, just to kind of see how it went. I don't know. Maybe also, if some big fight promotion had, say, one of the big powerful commissions basically in their pocket to the point where they could say, hey, can we have people just slap each other in the fucking head as long as they don't die? And that commission will say yes and rubber stamp whatever they want to do. Maybe they could use that power to lean on the commission and be like, we would like to try this out for some events and not others. Don't you think they could maybe get that commission to agree? Well, now I don't know what you're talking about. You've gone too far, Ben, folks. All right, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. Remember, if you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us all right coming up after this short break we're going to talk about the year of our lord 2022 in the ufc and how some of these stars fared or did not fare Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, Ben, it was a weird year for stars in the UFC. Conor McGregor didn't fight. John Jones, once again, didn't fight. Big Fran Francis Ngannou fought back in January and then spent the rest of the year, we're told, rehabbing from his injury and weighing his options, perhaps with one foot out the door. Nate Diaz left, packed up, hit the open market. Israel Adesanya lost the title. I guess, depending on how you look at it, this either wasn't a great year to be a star in the UFC, or it was just a blueprint of where we're going with this thing. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with John Jones and, and Francis Ngato, because that's that's the one we've been asking for for a while now. And frankly, as we sit here a week from the new year, it feels kind of like it's more possible now than it has been for you know, much of the, this entire year, although a lot of that is based just purely on speculation, right? We think, according to John Nash's recent argument article, Francis Ngannou may already be a free agent, and the fact that we haven't heard anything out of him or out of his camp could sort of presage a development that he is going to re-sign with the UFC, and if he does that, this fabled March date for John Jones that we've been kicking around, which at this point is some classic UFC shit of we have a date on the calendar picked out for John Jones. We know he's going to be there and we will find him an opponent. Well, if the opponent that you can find is Francis Ngannou, you better goddamn well do it. Yeah. Uh, and we would be pretty goddamn stoked if you did. But it does seem like... At the risk of reading too much into it, we've referred to this at times as the just some fights era of the UFC. Yeah. If you're the UFC and you're looking back at the year that was in 2022 and on the balance sheet, on the bottom line, you had a pretty good goddamn year. Like This is supposed to be the year, right, where we crest a billion dollars in revenue and you did all that without having to have any huge stars fight and... 
maybe even doing better financially because you weren't paying any big star kind of money out. Don't you feel like maybe your vision for what you're doing with this company has just been vindicated? Yeah. You don't need the big stars. The The brand is the star. It's good enough. Uh, you got good enough deals at this point that pay you whether people are watching or not. You programmed a big section of your audience to just expect that Saturday night is fight night and you'll bring them some people. And you've conditioned a lot of people in the media too to think that whatever you put your logo on or you even have under the umbrella of UFC programming, even if it's other stuff like Dana White's Contender Series and it seems like we're sure as hell going to try like hell to do the same thing with the slap fighting thing, you can get a lot of the media to go along with it and be like, okay, you guys are putting on this thing. Therefore, these people who we would not have given a shit about if they fought a month ago in LFA, as some of them did, now we care. Now they're meaningful. And now we're going to cover it like it's a real thing. And you're going to get a lot of the, the fans to go along with it. And so it's like, I would think that you'd be feeling like, okay, we had sort of a theory for how this could work. And this year proved that we're right. This year proved that that's viable. Can I make a personal admission? By all means. Now, I'm a guy who's been watching mixed martial arts in its various incarnations since the 90s, right? Since like 93 or 94. Been watching it a long time. I am as desensitized to -to hand-to-hand violence as it gets, you would think. When they showed the slap fighting commercial, you know, the slap new slap fight commercial just dropped. You've seen yeah. it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you that I find it hard to watch? Because I do. When one dude is standing there with the power slap log, what the hell do they call it? He's got he's holding a stick behind his back yeah. so that he can't protect his face, so that even his human instinct to protect his own face can't come into the equation. He's holding the power slap log behind his back, and the other guy rears off and quote-unquote slaps him in the face, but what they're actually doing is punching each other. Let's be honest. Regardless of what shape the fist is in, yeah, these are strikes that are doing damage. Other guy slaps him on his face while, while, while this first guy is standing there with his arms behind his back, I find it hard to watch, man. Like it's it, it's difficult for me to watch that slapping occur. I have to say, the thing that's wild to me is seeing like the interviews where you got the guy, like the guy referring to himself as the king of kinks, <laughs> talking about how he's here for legacy, and you're like, I get it that this is a person who like all of us, has basically had his brain poisoned by sports cliches, by decades of growing up and listening to these sports cliches, watching combat sports, and you probably can't even stop yourself from parroting some of the stuff. And it just seems so much more ridiculous when you apply it to slap fighting. Let me tell you something right now, my friend. If your slap fighting escapades are part of your legacy, that's a bad thing. (laughs) That means your legacy is not that great. You know, if they're talking about you laying you in the casket, hopefully years and years from now, and they're being like, well, he did do the slap fighting thing. That's not something they say about you if you are also a great father or something, you know, like that's that's not necessarily the legacy that you want. But also like them talking about, like, I'm here to prove that I'm the baddest in the world. You can't. You can't prove that. In a fucking slap fight where one guy just has to stand there, let you slap him in the face and then you let him have his turn. Cannot be proven that way. Unavailable. And then the thing that just is makes me feel like I'm living in a bizarre world is seeing already how many of the MMA media they're getting to sort of play along. And uh, we'll refer to it by the terms you tell us to refer to it by. You tell us exactly how you want this this sport covered. We will we will do that for you. And then having to turn around and justify themselves and be like, oh, no, I find it really compelling. I watch stuff. I talk to the guys. Yeah, I'm really interested. And it's like, no, you're not. And if you are, then God bless you. You're, you're, you're the media that the UFC has been waiting for all this time. Go, You can go ahead and bury me with the slap fighting title. That's what I say. <laughs> because it's made out of genuine leather. Genuine leather. <laughs> We're going to bury you with the slap fighting log thing. How long until we're selling those in the merch store, by the way? 
the UFC has never put out a sadder press release than when they circulated that picture of the slap fight and title. And it was like made of genuine leather. I was like, it better Gen- fucking be made of genuine leather. <laughs> Gonna make a billion dollars this year. Spend 400 bucks to make a title out of genuine leather. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm just picturing uh, Chevy Chase and Three Amigos doing that voice where he's going, genuine leather? Whoa, <laughs> genuine leather? Wow. Not even imitation leather? As if we're selling you a fucking wallet out back of the mall. <laughs> well, that was a digression. But John Jones, Ben Folks, is 35 years old. He's going to turn 36 this summer. And he, you know, his last fight was the Dominic Reyes fight. Yes, I we did know that. We have not seen this man fight since since 2020. It's going to be more than two years that we have seen since we have seen John Jones fight. Once we get him in the cage, come March. What do I, you know? I I couldn't even sit here and begin to tell you what we're going to get from Jonathan Dwight Jones when he returns, regardless of who the opponent is, having moved up to heavyweight and been absent from the cage for more than two years. This this is a mystery box to me. It's a grab bag. I have no idea what he's going to look like out there. I know. And that's the thing, I guess. One of the things that I think that was the, the initial sort of promise of John Jones going to heavyweight, right, was supposed to be, and he might get murdered. These guys might absolutely melt John Jones at heavyweight. And that was sort of, it was like the unstated part of the appeal was him saying like, John Jones has dominated the light heavyweight. People have sort of turned on him with more and more of these performances, especially lately after the Domino Reyes one and uh, the Tiago Santos one. Now he's going to go up to heavyweight where these guys could actually do something bad to him. Wouldn't you want to see that? And people went, yes, yes, we would. And now we're at the point where if even if he announced tomorrow, you know what? Fuck it. The heavyweight thing didn't work out. I'm going back to light heavyweight, get my belt back. We would just have no idea what we could even expect out of him at this point. I don't think he would know for sure what to expect out of him. Because how could you? Like a significant amount of time has passed where, you know, maybe you've been in the gym. You've also been in the on the bar stool a little bit here and there. But maybe you've been in the gym, but it's still... It's not the same as when you were competing really often and we got to see a whole lot. You don't know. It's it's a mystery. And now that mystery is going to become sort of a weird part of the appeal as well. Yeah. What emotions do you think you would experience if tomorrow they announced John Jones against Francis Ngannou is happening in March? Um, honestly, I would be fucking stoked i'd be I, actually i'm too i'm too experienced at this to get stoked just yet i'd be like mm, first i want to hear both guys say that they have signed <laughs> we did just you're make gonna, a point of that earlier in this show so yeah you're not gonna Paulo costa me again out here i want to hear both guys say it and and say that they have agreed to it um and then i'm gonna tell myself that probably somebody is gonna blow out a knee or uh, break a goddamn leg in the lead up to it but if we actually got there where it's fight night and shit is really happening, John Jones versus Francis Ngannou, I would be fucking jacked to see it still. Yeah, I mean, it's the fight we wanted, right? Like, it's the fight everyone was clamoring for when John Jones first announced this move up to heavyweight, Francis Ngannou being the champion, Francis Ngannou having, at this point, cleared what could have been the last hurdle against Cyril Gaon back in January, which seems like a lifetime ago that that happened, but was, frankly, the fight that the UFC gave the guy we can infer because the company thought that was going to be the toughest fight for Big Fran. And there was a lot of evidence to suggest he was headed for the for the exits, that he was headed for the door, came into it with a pretty serious knee injury. At this point, we have all heard the hilarious Eric Nixick anecdote about how the fight came to be. Francis, you know, has to change his, his typical strategy, becomes a bit of a wrestler there. I'm going to put that in air quotes, wrestler. Uh, during the second half of this fight, salts away the unanimous decision victory uh, and essentially, uh, at the, we think, could coast out of the UFC scot-free. But at this point, the, I think the, the real defining questions are what is available to the guy outside the UFC at this point? There's, you know, There had once been hot and heavy talk about Francis Ngannou against Tyson Fury. That feels like it has cooled off a little bit. There's still you know, uh, Deontay Wilder possibilities. There are some other boxing possibilities. And if there's a one fight paycheck out there 
that could change the financial future of Francis Ngannou in one fell swoop and potentially change the financial future, uh, you know, of, of a potential Francis Ngannou family. I feel like you, you still probably got to do that. But we haven't heard much talk about that. So like I said a few minutes ago, it just seems more and more like the possibility that he will return to the UFC becomes ever so much more likely. Now, he had aired a lot of grievances with the UFC, some of them financial, some of them just, uh, you know, ideological, really. Yeah. And it's, it remains to be seen if they can clear enough of those hurdles for him to come back and fight again. But I have to say, this year that we have spent speculating and kind of waiting to see what Francis Ngannou would do and indeed waiting to see what was possible for him to do, it has kind of made me want to see it in a way. It has kind of made me want to see Francis Ngannou become one of the first people to walk away from the UFC, essentially with the title still in hand, with his reputation still intact. And what we would think to be would be a bright free agency period in front of him, whether that was boxing or a different MMA organization or whatever. Uh, and so the part of me would feel a little bit just like a glimmer of disappointment if tomorrow they announced John Jones against Francis Ngannou, which it's the fight we wanted to see. Like I said, it's like potentially the biggest MMA fight of all time. And I would like you on fight night, I would be stoked to see it. But a little part of me would be like, I wanted to see this new world where Francis okay. Ngannou walks into free agency unblemished and still able to make himself a shitload of money and potentially holding a giant sign that says UFC fighters this way. Follow me. Okay. Two things about that. One, your feeling of uh, sort of low-grade disappointment if it turns out that Francis Ngannou does in fact resign after all and this was all for nothing. Um is that because you wanted to see somebody actually stick it to the UFC in a way to be like, you know what, they are doing us wrong and I'm not going to stick around and let you just buy me back into the fold. Um, and that maybe you think if he were to leave, he would set off that sort of little avalanche where people go, oh, wait a minute, Francis Ngannou is willingly walking away. Maybe the brand that I'm fighting under is less important than what I'm actually getting for it. Like, is it that you're something that you're hoping it would stand for or something you're hoping that would happen as a result? Well, of course, first of all. and But because we've seen the company win over and over again yeah. for its entire history, that's all it's done has been to triumph over the little guy. And that it's it's buying power and it's might in the marketplace. And, you know, maybe previous to the class action lawsuit, it's ironclad contracts wouldn't allow anyone to do that. So it would be refreshing to see someone be able to do that. It would be kind of heartening to see Francis Ngannou as potentially its biggest star and one of the biggest stars in combat sports if things swung right for him. It would be a feel-good moment to see him successfully do that. And I, you know, I won't deny that we've talked enough about it over the years that people probably know where I stand on the issue. It would be partially that, but it would, there would also be the unknown to it too, right? Like, I feel like we have seen these kind of contract disputes with the UFC play out in this exact way over and over again. And one of those guys, frankly, is John Jones, because it wasn't too long ago that John Jones was making all this noise about how he was done fighting and he wouldn't fight for the UFC again. And he wanted this big raise and all this other stuff. Well, now his name is on the line that is dotted for March and he doesn't have an opponent yet. So we have seen that outcome over and over again. The outcome that we haven't really seen, you know, with very, very few exceptions would be one of the top stars still in the prime of his career. Although Francis Ngannou is also 36 years old and with his marketability and buying power still intact, walk away and test this theory of like, okay, maybe there are bigger fights and bigger money for me out there. So like that part of it, just from like a spectator slash guy who covers the sports standpoint is also appealing to me just to see what would happen. The thing that we haven't really seen before. Okay. The other thing I was going to ask is we talked earlier about if the UFC learned some lesson from this year of no stars. And this reminds me of the discussion we had Back in January, when Francis Ngannou was talking about walking away, and we went, is it possible that the UFC would really let that happen? Would let its heavyweight champion, a guy who checks 
all the boxes that you should need to have checked to make somebody into a monstrous star for your sport and for your company, that they would let that guy go just because they don't want to pay him a little bit more money. When they know they'll still be making tons of money on his fights, they'll still be super profitable, you're not even giving up anything, you're just letting them cut tiny little bit more into this humongous overall pie, is it really possible they'd let the guy walk rather than do that and take the chance that he might be big for somebody else, uh, whether in MMA or boxing or elsewhere, or and take the chance that he might be a beacon to other fighters who, who might follow him? Would they really be willing to risk that rather than just pay the guy more money of which you have tons? Yeah. And then we go and have this year that we just talked about where no stars really fight and the UFC still continues to be a thing that makes a whole bunch of money. Don't you think that that only makes it more likely that they would say, yes, we are totally willing to do that because look at how it's gone for us. You haven't fought all year. We're not hurting. We're okay. Yeah. You want to go somewhere else and take it somewhere else? Like, all right, we'll continue to be okay this year, just like we were last year. Yeah, maybe. And I think that we all have to begrudgingly admit at this point that if the UFC's goals are to make itself a bunch of money and nothing else, well, they have sort of had the right idea. Like, it worked for them. The thing that they have been angling toward and working toward has worked out. They found the right equation to make themselves the most money possible and to be as successful as possible, at least financially. So hats off to them for that. But there's also this theory that you and I have aired before on this show, that the UFC's business model has changed so much that it's not really even in the business of making cool fights anymore. Like you will recall the, during the UFC's entire rise to prominence, basically throughout the entire spike TV era, the UFC's whole calling card, the whole secret to his success in many ways was that it made cool fights. It gave us the fights we wanted to see. Remember that when that was a big talking point that, Oh, boxing is so fractured that you never get to see the fights you want to see. But over in the UFC, you want to see Chuck versus Randy. Here it is. You want to see Randy versus Vitor. Here it is. You want to see Chuck versus Tito. Here it is. You want to see Tito versus Randy. Here it is. You get to see the fights that you want to see. And at this point, it doesn't feel like that's the ethos anymore. It started to change a little bit during the Fox era. And then especially as we graduated to the ESPN era, it's kind of changed whole cloth. Like, I don't even know if we're in the cool fights business anymore. I think that we will book cool fights, i.e. say Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. We'll still book that one if we can make it happen within the bounds of the budget that we have preset. But like you said, the moment that anyone suggests that they should get paid a little bit more than the UFC was planning, then the cool fight is off the table. That's what we saw with John Jones and Francis Ngannou. The moment that either of those two guys wanted even just a little bit more money, wanted the UFC to take 79% of the profits instead of 80%. They were like, nope, fuck it, ridiculous, not doing it, and Francis Ngannou can fuck off and walk away as far as we care. If Francis Ngannou were to return, and they were to book John Jones versus Francis Ngannou with deals that made sense for everybody, then at least we could say, oh, maybe at least partially we, we still are in the book and cool fights business. But if Francis Ngannou, your heavyweight champion, potentially the, the most dominant heavyweight or one of the most dominant heavyweights we have ever seen in this sport, just pieces out the door on the heels of a win and goes and takes a boxing match, he knows he's probably going to lose just for the money. Well, then we're, it's, that's a mask off moment for we're not making cool fights anymore. The cool fights business is over and we are fully into the content creation mode now. So it does, right. it is slightly meaningful to me from that. Sure. Point of view. But to a point that you have made here before on this very podcast is that the UFC seems content that the law of averages is going to work out that if you put on 10 to 12 fights, most weekends, you're going to get some cool shit happening. Fighters are going to do cool shit. Alex Casera is going to come up with a great head kick knockout. Somebody else is going to do spinning back heel kick to the fucking face. We're going to do cool viral shit that we can use often enough to just throw stuff out there and be like, hey, look at what's going on over here at the UFC. Basically, every Saturday, we're over here doing this shit. Come on, check it out. And that works. Like, you don't even necessarily have to 
break a sweat trying to really hard to make cool fights because you can just make a bunch of fights and some of them will end up being cool. Yeah. We saw it this weekend, right? They got Alex Caceres and Drew Dober. We already talked about those. Yep. Uh, and yeah, and like I said, I think you got to begrudgingly admit that they're right about that. They're right if that if that's what they want their business model to be and they want to maximize profits, they, they've done it correctly. Like a, around all of the gnashing of teeth and all of the complaining and all of the criticizing from the rest of us, they have done it. Like they have fully maximized that product and the, the uh, you know, the monetization that they have been able to derive from it. They've done a great job. But they also yeah. don't pay me. I pay them. I send them my money. So if they want to go make a billion dollars in profits, well, congratulations. But I'm still just a spectator, man. I'm still out here trying to watch Francis Ngannou versus John Jones. I'm, I still, I'm in the cool fights watching business. And so it's meaningful to me if the UFC is done with that now, if it's just content creation. You know, I heard uh, from a trusted source that every month Dana White says, bring me the Chad Dundas money. Bring me the money yeah. that Chad Dundas specifically has sent to the UFC. I want to roll around in it naked. Mm -hmm. I write a little memo on each one of my checks. <laughs> you put something in the subject line, make cool fights. Yeah. In the little memo line. Yeah. Book cool fights. K thanks is what it says. <laughs> Well, we've gone on too long as usual, but let's talk. Let's at least talk Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor before we get out of here. Conor McGregor, what the fuck, man? <laughs> do I need to do I need to put a finer point on the question than no, that? I or is we, that as, I, we can wrap that one up. Move on. Next order of business. Yeah. Do we ever see Conor McGregor fight in the UFC again? Out here looking like he just beat Lou Ferrigno in the refrigerator carry in the nineteen seventy eight World Strongest Man. Does he ever return? I mean. Almost anything seems possible with Conor McGregor at this point, uh, up to and including like uh, drowns in a yacht incident, um, goes to federal prison somewhere. That seems entirely possible. Um, fights 12 more times. Like I, I could almost envision sort of anything happening. The most interesting one, though, is that if Nate Diaz... It's out of his USC contract. We've already seen Conor McGregor be like, hey, I can go get a boxing license and see if you'd rather do business with me or get into a Ali Act situation where you're telling me I can't make a living as a boxer because of my UFC contract. Could they do some business outside the UFC? I mean, that stuff is more interesting to me from a like big picture, what's going on in the MMA world kind of situation. Like, do I actually feel like I need to see Conor McGregor in any of these fights, whether it's a trilogy with Nate Diaz or a trilogy with Dustin Poirier or any of the shit? No, like, yeah. I don't, Conor McGregor is not in the Francis Ngannou situation, at least in that sense for me, in that if Conor McGregor doesn't ever fight in the UFC again, I won't be sitting around asking myself a whole lot of what ifs. Yeah. Well, and he's, I think we can all say with pretty much certainty that Conor McGregor's not putting it together in a long-term way ever again, right? Like Conor McGregor might come back. He could be successful in one fight, right? He could come back and get a win. Sure. Why not? But he's never putting it together again, the way he did on the way up. We're never seeing that kind of run from Conor McGregor again, not only because he doesn't have to make it. And he's probably only going to fight once or twice a year for the rest of his life, if ever again, but also he's just, He's not doing it. He's not putting together a run like that again. He's he's too scattered at this point. Too many uh, irons in the fire, so to speak. Uh, I just said a minute ago that we were we. It would be interesting to me to see Francis Ngannou walk away into free agency on a high note with his marketability still intact. To see what was out there for him. But in fact, hasn't that isn't that what Nate Diaz just did in a lot of ways? Like he's he's clearly on the competitive downside in a way that Francis Ngannou is not. But just considering the way that things worked out for him around his final, what we think is his final UFC fight this year, like Nate Diaz kind of did it, right? Like he kind of lived the dream of rolling out there, beating Tony Ferguson at UFC 279, and then coasting into free agency where we think there will be some marketable and lucrative opportunities for him. We haven't heard what those will be yet, but that is kind of the position that he is in, right? Yeah, um, at least for the moment, uh, at least f 
for the purposes of negotiating the next thing. You know, as far as what it looks like in that next thing and what kind of a future there is after that, I don't know. Because it's there's a lot of like we talked a lot about this sort of the freedom you could have to take this name that you have built up and then have a little bit more choice in what you want to do with it, how you want to monetize it. Um, But I don't know how far that extends indefinitely into the unknowable future. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's like Francis and Ghana, you kind of got to go or at least try to go for the big swing, right? You got to have get right away, get that one paycheck. That could be the difference between one lifestyle and another for as long as you live. And you got to, you got to take it. I would think. I also, I don't want us to get out of here before I read us uh, this tweet from Conor McGregor sent earlier today. I've decided from now to engage only with positivity and support on this platform. (laughs) Period. There is no point to engage in any sort of response to little wimpy cry buzz and old man farmer beater Alcos and his little offspring bottler son fucked a lot of them back to the gaff. It's a park. So I, it seems like he's mad about something that's that's going on involving a farmer and some of the it's a feels like maybe a thing going on in Ireland that, that you and I are not privy to. Uh, it's all over his timeline here. Well, he did, um, he did take a swipe at one of the, like the guy who runs the national team or something. He took a swipe at somebody recently, and I don't know. You're right. It was it's it wasn't for me to know or care <laughs> what Conor McGregor was talking about. Now I knew. I like, just want to point out that his promise to himself or his decision to only engage with positivity and support on this platform it lasted until the next sentence well that's a i want to apologize to absolutely fucking nobody moment right <laughs> like we kind of knew that was coming that's 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 just connor doing his stuff right there just you know it's kind of like saying like i don't I don't want to say anything bad about Chad Dundas because (laughs) all due respect to Chad Dundas, but he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, who could blame you? Who could blame me with that one? There's be run over by a car. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. Thanks for listening everybody. I got a sick kid here at home, so I don't think we're going to do after hours. I'm kind of surprised that she hasn't started the house on fire in the last hour and seven minutes. So I'm going to go check in with her. Uh, But we will be over at the Patreon with the live chat tomorrow. Uh, Thursday's doing the damn thing. And then Friday's power hour before we take next week off. So head over there, patreon.com slash co-main event and follow us there. Thanks for listening, everybody. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. What was the last part of the Conor McGregor tweet again? Do you still have it? Do you still have it in front of you? I have to go back and find it here. But uh, it's a gaff. Here it is. It's a park. Back to the gaff. It's a park. Okay, we're going to have to get Sean G. Tell us what that means. Back to the gaff. Does that just mean back to, back to business? Back to... I don't, I, I don't know what that means. That could mean absolutely anything.